From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. You're listening. to Terra Informa. Well, when your morning bike ride starts requiring a few extra layers to fend off the chill, you know that summer is on its way out. This week, we're sending off the month of August with another News Roundup episode. I'm Hannah Cunningham, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news and stories. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory, in Amiskwitzi, Wiskaigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. The Papas Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. This week, we are catching you up on all of the environmental news you might have missed in the past month. We will start with some headlines that you've probably already seen, like a certain report on climate change and a certain country announcing a snap federal election. Spoiler alert, it's Canada. If you haven't heard, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released the first report in their sixth assessment series. Titled AR6 Climate Change 2021, The Physical Basis, the report is, as you may have guessed, an update on the physical evidence that we are living in a time of unprecedented climate change caused by human industrial activity. The report includes a number of alarming headline statements, but we'll link those in our show notes instead of reminding you that the extreme heat, flooding, forest fires, and other crises you lived through this summer are only going to get worse. What is new about this assessment is how regionally specific impact modeling has become. While we all know that the climate crisis is affecting us, we can now get a better sense of what kind of worse it will get, and just how much based on where we live with a handy interactive map. Neato. The other reports in the sixth assessment series are scheduled to be released in February and March of 2022, and will cover impacts, adaptation and vulnerability, and mitigation of climate change. A full synthesis report should be released in September of next year. While we wait for those updates, why not plan a climate action for this September at the voting booth? If you live in so-called Canada and are at least 18 years of age, in about 20 days' time, you can decide what federal political party will govern this nation for the next four years. What party do you think will have your back as we live through intersecting climate and social crises? Do any candidates in your riding support a just transition? Does anybody even care about more than jobs and the economy? These can be challenging questions to answer, and we would never tell you who to vote for. We will, however, give you a summary of the National Observer's analysis and link a few more reviews in our show notes of where the major parties stand on climate change and other issues. When you vote, we want you to be informed. Here's Elizabeth Dowdell with a summary of how each party plans to mitigate and adapt to the climate crisis, 
based on their election platform. After scrolling far and wide, this is my favorite overview of the main federal political party platforms, courtesy of the National Observer, because it includes that tiny, niggling, little element of reality that somehow seems to go missing when the political campaigning gets started. In no particular order, here is a lot of fact and a little bit of commentary on what the Liberals, Conservatives, New Democratic Party, and Green Party intend to do about the climate crisis if elected to form our federal government. Key initiatives of the Liberals' plan are to increase carbon pricing to $170 per ton by 2030, improve climate accountability with targets and reporting every five years from 2030 to 2050, decarbonize heavy industry with small modular nuclear energy, consult with Indigenous peoples, NGOs, labor, small business, and industry on how to make a just transition, invest in hydrogen fuel production and trade, and invest in carbon capture technology to reduce emissions. The Liberals' plan should reduce emissions by 40 to 45 percent over 2005 levels by the year 2030 and reach net zero emissions by the year 2050. These could all be good things, but here is the reality check. The NDP, Green Party, and Bloc Quebecois all reject nuclear power because of its toxic byproducts, and the technology for small modular nuclear reactors might not be ready until 2030, which is too late for immediate emissions reduction. Also, in terms of technology, hydrogen fuels have clean energy potential, but fuels like blue hydrogen may actually be worse than burning coal in terms of emissions. Further, at least 500 environmental and other organizations have asked the federal government to quit investing in carbon capture technology because it slows down the transition away from oil and gas. Speaking of transition, did you know in 2020, the Liberal federal government announced supports for oil and gas totaling almost $18 billion? while only proposing $15 billion for their climate plan over the next 10 years? At the same time, the Trudeau government is still suggesting the Trans Mountain Pipeline will help fund Canadian climate objectives, even though a parliamentary budget officer reported the pipeline would only turn a profit if the government took zero other measures to mitigate the climate crisis. Talking about zero measures, the Conservative Party has, for the first time, been accused of having a real climate change plan. Good on ya. Their plan introduces carbon pricing for the first time, promotes zero emissions vehicles, invests in carbon capture, utilization, and storage technology, invests in nature-based solutions like forest management and restoration, wetlands and grasslands, introduces a minimum requirement renewable content in natural gas, like from landfills or other biogas, and introduces a low-carbon fuel standard. The Conservative Party plans to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to 30% below 2005 levels by 2030. And I didn't see any statements for an emissions reduction rate by 2050. The reality check for the Conservative plan is that it is a big step for this party. And it shows. At a party convention earlier this year, 54% of voting delegates said no to including the phrases, we recognize that climate change is real, and... The Conservative Party is willing to act in their party policy documents. At the same time, their first-time carbon pricing starts at $20 per ton up to a cap of $50 per ton. 
which you'll notice is much lower than the $170 per ton the Liberals propose and has already alienated conservative supporters like the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Further, the proposed zero emissions vehicle policy the Conservatives have been pushing would require only 30% of light-duty vehicles meet this standard by 2030, falling short of an International Energy Agency recommendation that says we must end the sale of new internal combustion engine passenger vehicles by 2035. In this Conservative plan, Carbon capture technology faces the same criticism of prolonging oil and gas use as it does in the Liberal platform, and has proposed funding of $5 billion, while nature-based climate solutions are only proposed $3 billion of funding. Key initiatives in the NDP platform include carbon pricing at a rate similar to the Liberal Party, but with a lower threshold for industrial emitters that would tax any company exceeding 70% of average emissions. Initiatives also include increased climate accountability with an independent oversight office, a green jobs plan with investments in clean energy, energy efficiency, transit, and other infrastructure to create jobs, while also funding education and targeted support for workers, families, and communities to transition to a low-carbon future, basically adjust transition and building retrofits, and the use of energy storage solutions, like battery arrays, for solar and wind instead of increasing the nuclear power supply. The NDP plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions 50% by 2030 and achieve net zero by 2050. The reality check for the NDP plan seems to be that the party leader has been inconsistent in his allyship with Indigenous communities contesting resource extraction on their traditional territories, with leader Jagmeet Singh opposing projects like the Trans Mountain Pipeline, but making statements of support for LNG projects like the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline through Wet'suwet'en territory. That's not so scathing a reality check and doesn't reference the party's climate plan, so maybe they're doing great. Or maybe we need to take a closer look at this platform before going to the polls. The Green Party has not released a policy platform in the traditional sense of posting a massive PDF guide to their plans and has instead been releasing new information day by day. Key initiatives in the Green Party plan include carbon pricing across Canada and at the border to incentivize North American emissions reductions, an end to all oil and gas exploration projects, new pipelines and fracking, a just transition for fossil fuel workers based on each province, a massive retrofit program for residential, commercial and industrial buildings, and 100% renewable electricity through investments in renewable production and a national grid that does not include any nuclear energy. The Green Party plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions 60% over 2005 levels by 2030. Canada's fair share of emissions, and I did not see any statements about 2050 levels. The reality check for the Green Party plan appears to be that the 100% renewable electricity plan is technically feasible, but could encroach on provincial jurisdiction that might make this politically not so much of a reality. So that's it for our coverage of the major political parties and where they stand on the climate crisis in the 2021 Canadian federal election. I hope you're feeling a little more informed and encourage you to vote for the party you think will deliver a livable future for us and our planet. Thanks, Liz. The most important information we can give you about voting is to remember that election platforms don't always become real policy. 
Whatever happens at the polls, what matters is to keep demanding life-saving climate action from politicians now, for us and future generations. Okay, enough headlines. Let's get into some stories that you might have missed. For our first news story, we are starting south of the U.S.-Canada border. The southwestern United States are in the grip of a historic drought, and it is beginning to have startling effects on water levels of the largest reservoir in the country. Here's Sophia Osborne with that story. In mid-August, the United States government announced a water shortage on the Colorado River for the first time ever. Lake Mead is a massive reservoir, the largest in the U.S., formed by the Hoover Dam on the Colorado River. Located in the states of Arizona and Nevada, the reservoir provides water to around 25 million people located in Arizona, Nevada, California, and Mexico. Much of the western United States has been gripped by an ongoing historic drought fueled by the changing climate. The increase in demand for water caused by the drought conditions, along with very low rain and snowfall amounts in the West over the past year, have brought Lake Mead's water levels to a low that hasn't been seen since the 1930s. According to an article by CNN, Lake Mead hasn't been considered full since the year 2000. Now, what does it mean that the U.S. government announced a water shortage? This declaration puts into motion mandatory water consumption cuts for states in the southwest United States. The U.S. Bureau of Reclamation announced that the Colorado River will undergo a first tier of water cuts beginning on January 1st. There is a priority list for the water consumption cuts, and the tier 1 cuts will result in the states of Nevada and Arizona being affected first. In these first round of cuts, farmers in Arizona will be the most affected. In anticipation of a reduction in the water supply, some farmers have set fields aside to fallow, switched to crops that require less water, or have begun pumping up groundwater to use instead of irrigation, which raises more questions about the sustainability of groundwater supplies. Indigenous tribes in the Southwest have been contributing water to Lake Mead to help prop up water levels. The tribes agreed to store 150,000 acre-feet of water in the lake over the next three years. The Colorado River Indian tribes, in return, received $38 million, which included $30 million from the state and the rest from environmentalists, foundations, and corporations. The tribe plans to use the money to invest in its own water infrastructure. It remains to be seen if these restrictions on water use will be enough to balance the declining water levels of Lake Mead. Recent weeks of heavy rain in parts of Arizona and New Mexico, along with cooling temperatures, have helped ease the drought conditions. But the remainder of the states in the southwest are still seeing hot, dry conditions. Thanks, Sophia. Next, we're moving from the desert to the coast. Here's Sarah Chitsas reporting on issues surrounding aquaculture and the health of wild fish stocks in coastal British Columbia. Aquaculture, also known as fish farms, is used to cultivate large quantities of fish. An increase in the global demand for seafood combined with shrinking fish stocks has led to the growth of the aquaculture industry over the last number of years. In Canada, Atlantic, Chinook, and Coho are the three types of salmon that are farmed. 
There are a few types of aquaculture, but the two main ones we'll discuss here are open net pen fish farms, which are essentially large netted areas in the ocean used to contain farmed fish, and land-based fish farms, which are basically big tanks used to farm fish. Open net pen fish farming is associated with a number of environmental risks and impacts. One of the most common critiques that you'll come across is the potential for open net pen farmed fish to spread parasites like sea lace and diseases like Piscine orthoreovirus, which is a highly contagious bacterial infection, to wild fish. Other issues associated with open net pen farmed fish include high concentrations of waste sometimes found near their pens and increased potential for algal blooms that reduce the amount of oxygen found in the water near fish farms. Land-based fish farms can avoid a number of the issues associated with open net pen fish farming. Land-based fish farms eliminate the risk of spreading infections or parasites to wild stocks by being on land, and they can reduce the shipping costs and environmental impacts of shipping long distances because they are not limited to being established along coastlines. While land-based systems have been confirmed as being viable for commercial development in BC, as reported by the federal government in a report titled State of Salmon Aquaculture Technologies, land-based fish farms do have relatively high upfront costs as they need good filtration systems and regular maintenance. Land-based fish farms also require a few years before the first fish farmed from them reach maturity, meaning that there may be delays in the return on investments for land-based fish farmers. Aquaculture in BC is regulated by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, or the DFO. The DFO is the federal institution responsible for managing ocean resources and fisheries in Canada. Legislation, including the Fisheries Act and, in BC, the Pacific Fisheries Act, outline the regulations for aquaculture. It is important to note that the DFO has historically been criticized for a lack of engagement with First Nations in Canada. As reported in a story in the Narwhal, titled, We Need That Plan, 109 BC fish farm licenses soon set to expire but federal transition strategy missing, there are 109 fish farm licenses that are set to expire in the next year. But with the upcoming federal election, it is unclear whether open net pen fish farm licenses in BC will continue to run and these fish farm licenses will be renewed. According to another story in the Narwhal, titled Trudeau Government Backpedals on Election Promise to Phase Out BC Open Net Salmon Farms by 2025, the Trudeau government has replaced its earlier campaign promise of ending open net pen fish farming in BC by 2025 with a promise to develop what they deemed to be a responsible plan for moving the industry away from open net pen fish farming on the coast of BC. This is in response to outcry from fish farmers who would be put out of work should open net pen fish farming be ended. On the other hand, wild salmon conservationists are claiming that waiting that long before developing a plan for reducing open net pen fish farming will make it too late to restore wild salmon stocks. As wild salmon populations in Canada continue to decline, there will likely be increased pressure on the aquaculture industry to keep producing seafood. Options like land-based fish farms may be a way forward to more sustainable aquaculture in BC. However, it's important to remember that First Nations and communities that rely on fishing for sustenance, cultural practices, and or livelihoods will need to be a part of the conversation on fish farming moving forward. Thanks, Sarah. If you're just tuning in, this is Terra Informa. We are rounding up the headlines that you might have missed from the month of August. So far, we have covered the political platforms of candidates running in Canada's upcoming federal election, water shortages in the southwestern United States, 
and issues around aquaculture in coastal British Columbia. Are you ready for some updates on the past month's actions led by land and water defenders across Turtle Island? Line 3, Enbridge's pipeline expansion project that will carry crude oil from Alberta to a terminal in Washington, continues to forge forward despite legal challenges and protests held by Indigenous communities and environmental groups in the United States. At the time I wrote this update, on August 25th, the Minnesota Supreme Court declined to hear an appeal by the opponents of the pipeline, which allowed for the construction of the project to continue. The declining of the appeal leaves the land and water defenders with few legal options to halt the completion of the pipeline, which, according to Enbridge, could come online as soon as mid-September. The project is 80% finished, with only a small part of the Minnesota portion left to complete. Numerous actions calling for the halting of the pipeline have taken place along the project route since December of 2020, with protesters and land and water defenders facing pepper spray at the hands of police, rubber bullets, arrests, and time in jail. According to a CBC article, more than 700 arrests have taken place along the pipeline route since December 2020, when construction in Minnesota started. Currently, at the time I'm writing this, Additional actions in protest of the pipeline are scheduled to take place in Minnesota's capital. Opponents of the pipeline are calling for President Joe Biden to order the Army Corps of Engineers to cancel the project's federal permits, despite how close it is to completion. These actions are part of a series of events called Treaties Over Tar Sands and are organized by Indigenous land and water defenders as well as environmental activists. The forest protection camps and blockades at Ferry Creek continue to push for the end of old-growth logging in the coastal forests of British Columbia. Outside of the logging areas, protesters have recently gathered at RCMP detachments across the province to call out the increasing aggression of police and violence against forest defenders who are present at the blockades. In past News Roundup episodes, I have referred listeners to the Ferry Creek Blockade Instagram account for updates on what is going on at the blockades. However, Indigenous forest defenders have stated that those who are running this Instagram account may not be directly involved with the front lines at Ferry Creek, particularly those of the Nuchanu people, to voice their own words through the account. On Instagram, Indigenous land and water defenders are calling for the controller of the Ferry Creek blockade social media account to allow unrestricted access of the account by Nuchanu people on the front lines so they may share updates and news from their own perspectives. Those were updates from the Land and Water Defenders working in opposition of the Line 3 pipeline project and old growth logging in Ferry Creek. Now, let's share a bit of good news. Here's Charlotte Thomason with a story about a particularly rare orchid. Do you ever look down when you're walking, noticing all of the plants on the forest floor? When we slow down and look, we can often find some pretty great things. This is what happened to Meredith Philiston when she was hiking in Lamington National Park in Australia. Normally, Meredith would be looking for fungi, but that day she noticed a plant with tiny little reddish flowers, no larger than a pinky fingernail. It looked kind of like an orchid, so she snapped a picture and sent it to her friend and orchid lover, Joanne Lau. They got in contact with Dr. Lachlan Copeland, who said that the orchid was smaller than ones he'd seen before in the National Park. 
With permission from the Queensland Herbarium and under guidance from Dr. Copeland, Lau went back to the site the following day and collected samples of the orchid. Orchids are fragile, so special collection methods had to be considered. One method they used was blowing air into the bag that the specimen was in to increase carbon dioxide levels, which helped preserve the species for its 10-kilometer trek back out of the park. Once the orchid got back to the lab, its flowers, fruits, and stem were examined. Based on that information and the location it was found in, Dr. Copeland determined that the orchid was a novel find by the scientific community. The orchid is part of the greenhood, or Pteriostylus genus. This group is unique for its galia, which is a fusion of petals forming a hood which covers the sexual parts of the flower. They are pollinated mostly by tiny flies and mosquitoes. Yes, mosquitoes. I guess they are good for something. As an addendum, we can assume that this isn't the first sighting of the plant. Indigenous peoples have been in Australia since time immemorial, and this is only the first Western description of it. Once this orchid is confirmed by the scientific community as a distinct species, it will need a name. And Meredith and Joanne are pushing for an indigenous name in the Yugambe language. The Yugambe people are native to southeast Queensland, where the orchid is located. Through the colonization of Australia, the Yugambe were displaced from their territories, following attacks from Australian police in the 1800s. The pair believe it is important to recognize the indigenous community in the area. Naming a species can take up to two years, so... Stay on the lookout for updates to this story. This has been Charlotte Thomason reporting from my bedroom. Thanks, Charlotte. In more good news, especially for those of you thinking about the sustainability of your local beer scene, here's Lizzie Barron reporting on a new CO2 capturing technology being implemented by an Alberta brewery. Blind Man Brewing, located in Lacombe, Alberta, is working on adopting a new CO2 capturing technology that will reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of the brewery. The beer brewing process involves taking a grain, extracting the sugars from it into a liquid solution, and then adding yeast to that liquid solution. Adding the yeast starts the fermentation process, which creates alcohol and CO2 as the yeast digests the sugars. According to an article by CTV Edmonton, the CO2 that is usually produced during this process is simply released into the atmosphere. This is where some innovative technology created by Earthly Labs out of Texas comes into play. Earthly Labs has created a device that captures the CO2 produced in the beer fermentation process, cleans it, and turns it into a liquid form that can be reused in other parts of the beer making process. The liquid CO2 can be used for carbonating beer, packaging, or for purging the big tanks where all the magic happens. According to the Earthly Labs website, the device, called CC, quote, dries, scrubs, and liquefies, end quote, the produced CO2 to remove oxygen, moisture, acid gases, volatile organic compounds, and aromas. The liquid that is produced is beverage grade, which makes it suitable for instant reuse. CC is also equipped with sensors that monitors the gas stream and allows for efficient capture without the need for manually manipulating the device. According to one of the co-founders of Blind Man Brewing, being able to reuse the captured CO2 will save the brewery around $60,000 per year. 
The total cost of the project is expected to ring in at $200,000, but the brewery will likely be able to pay for half of that cost through funding from the Emission Reductions Alberta. Other large-scale breweries, like the Labatt Processing Plant in Edmonton, have incorporated this new technology already. But Blind Man Brewing will be the first small-scale brewery in Canada to use the CO2 capturing technology. According to the brewery, the device should be all set up by December. Pair this new CO2 reusing strategy with their rooftop solar panels and Blind Man Brewing seems like a great option for the sustainable-minded beer enthusiast. Cheers! Thanks, Lizzie. That is all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Heads up, we are taking a fall break. For the next month, we'll be airing archive episodes while the Terrett Informers catch up on life stuff off the airwaves, including some well-deserved rest and relaxation. We'll be back at the beginning of October to cover the month's headlines, probably the election outcome, and then unleash some brand new episodes. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Thank you to everyone who contributed a story this week. If you like what you heard, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Terra Informa. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa. Mm-hmm.